um, the top ones aren't stapled, so there's like two pieces, and I think there's like enough for one per family. I made like 15 copies. If you want more, I can make you more, but it didn't seem like the kind of thing everyone needed their own, and I'm not going to use them heavily, so they are just uh, kind of some examples of what we're talking about. Uh, I didn't PDF it. I didn't have it ready, but if somebody wants it, they can email me. Okay. There's two. It's like a one staple, then one's just a piece of paper, and when you get to the bottom, I actually staple them all together. I left some of them at home. So... Okay, so I, I thought I would re-just iterate, like, why I'm preaching from over here instead of over here, because a couple people had asked, and it's not actually based on the Southern Baptist Convention or anything like that. So it, it's because I, this is where we preach, and we bring forth the Word, and, like, the Word of the Lord comes out. And this is about the Word of the Lord, but it's not from the Word of the Lord. And so when we read this, the... Like the passages, they could be like a whole sermon, but I'm not like preaching the sermon on the passage. I'm kind of looking more at how you can look at passages. So I just thought that was more appropriate from this side. Um, so just if anyone had questions on that. So last week we talked a little bit of an overview about kind of these literary approaches and kind of how we can train our mind to like look for certain things and see certain things and focusing specifically around uh, three cornerstones, memory, symbol, and pattern. And that can also have to do with form, but memory, symbol, and pattern. Uh, memory being the things that we as the reader connect or that the author expects us to kind of connect and that we just see. So we remember, oh, we've read this other thing that looks similar. Oh, isn't there another story like that in the Bible? Um, symbol being something that stands in for something else that's more, you know, I use the word figurative a lot and I realized this week as I was going, it's not always figurative in the Bible, sometimes it's spiritual, which is still literal, but it's not physical. So it's a physical item standing in for something that's not physical. So more of an idea or a spiritual reality um, that isn't necessarily like right here, right here. And then pattern, those kind of repeated patterns, and that's what we'll look at a lot today, uh, but things that happen again and again in certain ways, and both when those continue on or when they're breached or sometimes fulfilled, as the Bible uses. So I'll just mention the handout really quickly that I sent around. And so the first part is some common um, archetypes. So archetypes are these kind of overarching patterns that people have noticed. They're throughout literature. These are specifically some from the Bible, and that big text, that's a couple pages from Leland Rikens, How to Read the Bible um, as Literature, and he has a whole bunch of different tools and things like that um, from that perspective. He's an English professor and the president of Wheaton College for a while, so um, looking at how that is an enriching approach, and he has the list, so instead of me listing them all out and you not remembering them or having to write them all down, there's a good list of things that we see often used in similar ways. And then the last piece I'll talk about in a second, but uh, we wanted to focus today on narrative, okay? And so narrative just means storytelling, um, and that can be storytelling that is fictional or not true, like we think of the Lord of the Rings or something, um, or narratives are still narratives when they're true, when they're fiction, so, or nonfiction. A lot of times in literature, we don't talk about fiction and nonfiction and writing and craft for creative writing. We talk about prose as a bigger category. So some people, when they hear story, they think like fake or made up, but a story is, it can be a true story based on a true story or not. So just to, to, to kind of throw that out there, I had a question about that, and it's a great question um, that we, when you think of the literature you read in your high school English class, that's mostly fiction. It's made up, but we can look at nonfiction the same way. And the storytellers use a lot of the same techniques um, to a varying you know, level. So narrative is the storytelling. So we'll start with that this week. Um, and we look at that because we're like, oh, well, the Bible is history. The Bible is true. The Bible is biographies. It is, um, but not all pieces of historical information are necessarily given the same way. A lot of what we're given in the Bible is kind of summarized very quickly. Kings and Chronicles, we get hundreds of years, just like boom, 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 boom. Some people get like one line item, right? We do the genealogies, 400 years in like one sentence, right? So some of it's kind of gone through quickly. And then some of it, that, that still requires actually literary attention, I would argue, um, that there are patterns and symbolic meaning and all of those kind of like lists. The lists of the Bible are important. Um, but... Then when the Bible stops and expands on somebody for like a long time, you're like, oh, maybe this one is like one is more important. We're supposed to get some more out of this, which is why, of course, Jesus gets like four whole books plus 
arguably the entire Bible, but at least four whole books, right? And even Joseph or Mo, you know, Moses gets four too, I guess. So they're kind of a parody there. But everybody else gets like a paragraph, you know, and then a couple of sentences. So there is an emphasis just by proportion um, and an emphasis on how the stories are told. So the structure of how the stories are told can be important, and that's a little more complicated. So I don't know if that's going to um, fit well, but that's that last page on the handout, um, just like an interesting one when I was looking through. Uh, from a literary scholar who was looking at how the passage in Exodus and passages in Revelations, if you go through and kind of just, it's hard to read it in copy, well, sorry. But if you line by line them, it's like the same order of events, right? So that then says it's not just this one event happened this way, it's a pattern of behavior, right? Just like when we do the liturgy, it's a pattern of behavior. So you're like, okay, there's a reason it's the way it is. It's not just how it happened. Um, what that meaning is depends on a lot of different things. And what um, it at the very least does is if we have memory for that first story, connects it in our mind like, hey, this seems familiar, is connecting the two items in our mind. And actually a lot of Revelation does that uh, to connect back to Old Testament ideas and images and things like that. So, Which isn't to say I understand the book of Revelation. But there are some patterns there that are not brand new. Revelation read by itself out of context is even harder to understand than Revelation read in the context of the rest of the scriptures. So so what we mostly remember are the more vivid stories. So really quick, everybody can shout out at once. Like, what's your favorite, like, Bible character story? Like, you got? Thank you. Right? Okay, so we got a lot of these. I like JL, personally. That was not in your children's study Bible, but just go look it up if you don't know, okay? Uh, So... That's what we remember. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness, right? That's kind of dramatic story. The parting of the Red Sea. Samson, right? Even certain judges get a lot more play than the others. Um, Deborah also. But Samson's a big one. Ruth gets her whole book, right? And they put her name on it. So that's like kind of made. The Gospels give us the stories of Jesus, but also the stories Jesus told. So there's all kinds of narratives happening there. Um, and that would be an example, actually, of fiction in the Bible, right? So Jesus... It's nonfiction. It's true that Jesus told the story, but like the Good Samaritan doesn't actually exist necessarily as a person. He's not giving a news account of that or the sower in the field, right? So those are fictional stories in the text. There's lots of layers there we could unpack. But I really want to reiterate is from last week, right, is that these stories, the Bible gives us all this information in stories because the stories invite us to share in the experience, which is why you probably have a favorite Bible character or at least could name one. And if I'm like, what's your favorite law? You're like, mm, I don't even, you know, I got a couple, right? You probably could list more Bible characters than like 10, command- like Ten Commandments. I know 10, right? Um, but the stories invite us to experience them and to learn from them, and we have to often interpret. So sometimes the stories will give us their own moral, but sometimes we have to interpret it. And that's done differently by different scholars, by different readers, which is why often we have different ideas of what we're supposed to get out of a story and why there's a million commentaries on those books. But I think we should at least agree that if it's developed, if the Bible gives it any amount of page time, right, scroll time, then then God wanted us to have it, so there's something there. What that is, we have to figure out sometimes. So there are three basic characteristics of a narrative or of a story. Uh, setting, character, and plot. Okay, And I'm actually going to spend, I think, the longest on setting. I try to watch my time today, because I practiced last night, and it was real long, guys. So you might be here. I hope you brought snacks. Okay, um, But setting is the time, place, and the context of the story. And so uh, most of us would say it's the place of the story. That's the first answer, and that's true. But it's the larger setting, the larger context of the story. And these are often historical accounts. And so you're like, well, the setting is just where it was. Like, if that's where the Declaration of Independence was signed, that's where it was signed. It doesn't mean anything. But often it does, um, especially because as much as human hands are writing the Bible, the larger narrative is orchestrated by God. So he gets to decide where the Ten Commandments are given out, right? It doesn't just happen. And humans were often set with where we are, but God got to choose where he was going to put everything. So I think we can read a little extra into that. And even so, in a narrative, 
um, we would look at how the author chooses to characterize the setting and space and how much time they spend on it. And so is a quiet house peaceful or spooky, right? That's a choice of the author. It's the same setting, but how they describe it to us matters. Is the wilderness a place of punishment or a place of closeness to God, right? And different stories might tell us that. We, I would say, often tend to, I was always told the wilderness was like a place of punishment. It's bad, right? But actually, Jesus chooses to go into the wilderness before his ministry, right? Just like Israel goes into the wilderness before they enter the promised land. There's a pattern. And the wilderness is when God shows up, makes a tabernacle, joins the party, right, so to speak. So I don't know that from a biblical pattern, the wilderness is just a place of punishment, but a place of extended communion with God. There's not a lot of distractions, and we all know that helps, right? And they're both there. The Israelites are there for how long? 40 years. And how long does Jesus go? 40 days. We'll talk about numbers in a minute, but just these repeated patterns, right? It's not an accident. I would say most of what happens that we get written in the Bible is not accident. Some things in life are just a coincidence. The things that we got offered here, written down, to like live for all eternity, those probably aren't just accidents. So... Uh, we want to look for those patterns. Uh, so there's a question. I got uh, some interesting answers last night when I asked Anna this. But where is the common place? If we think about we're going to meet God besides the wilderness, that's what she actually said. So that's why I did that segue. Where do people meet God? Like in a story. If you think about people, if you're going to have a story where someone's going to go and like have a moment with God, where are they going? They can pray in the closet. The Paul says that. Right? It's a very christian thing to say, too. Oh, that would be, yes, that's a whole different thing, the cross. If someone's had a real emotional, impactful experience with God, where'd they go? The mountaintops. I knew somebody knew, right? You guys have been to church long enough. So it's mountaintop experience. Well, why do we use that metaphor? Because it's not, sometimes it is the mountains, like literally it's at church camp and you went to the mountain. But, right, we say that all the time. But why do we say that? Because that's where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. That's where we start. Actually, we can see that a few ways. So I'm going to kind of look at Sinai and mountains as kind of a, a breakthrough in setting. Like I said, this will be the longest section, I think, because it's the one you probably haven't thought about the most. It's the one I think about the least. So we're going to look at John 4. Um, and we'll start at 3, which is probably not where your Bible breaks this story. Um, and I'm going to read probably just the whole thing for ease. So... He, Jesus, left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's actually all setting. That whole section is set up. Then we get the the plot. There came a woman of Samaria to draw near, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman, and Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. But where do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered her and said, Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. Jesus likes to say, You have correctly said. Like, he always asks the question that people know the answer to. I just, that's an interesting side note. But you have five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This I have said truly. And she said, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And I'm going to skip past, actually, this really important section, so you should read that. But then I want to end with, um, let's see. About 25, I guess I can read the whole thing. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, and that when that one comes, he will declare all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this is a story. Probably we've all heard this story before. We're familiar. Uh, We like to pull out the verse about worshiping in spirit and truth. That's like a really commonly kept phrase from this one. But if we look back to where it starts, it starts off with the setting, which is not Mount Sinai. So I do realize that, okay? We're talking about mountains here, okay? We'll talk about Sinai in a minute. Um, So we spend a lot of time in this passage actually like running through where they are and what they're doing. The Bible sometimes does that. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they're like, they're by a lake, right? Sometimes they're like, they're in this city. They're in this person's house. So it just depends on the situation. But in this case, a lot of time is spent on it. Um, And that's, I think, important because they're going to emphasize a few things. One is that they're in Samaria. So that gives us a cultural context. And if you weren't sure, the Jesus and the woman have this nice little conversation to tell you, like, why you should know. Like, okay, we're not friends, right? The Jews and the Samaritans are not, are not necessarily in a great relationship here, right? So we have that. But also that we're at the well. I mean, it could be any well. Uh, wells would have a whole kind of communal sense to them at this point in time, right? So the local gathering place is a public place. We could like look at a lot of facets of what is interesting about the well in general. But this specifically um, is Jacob's well, right? And the writer reminds us that he gave to his son Joseph. So at the beginning of the story, we've invoked that the location is associated with Jacob and Joseph. So as much as Samaria is kind of like, mm, not Jerusalem, like this is a place that we're associating with the patriarchs, right? And with Joseph, who's often associated with Christ. Like this is a place for him to reveal himself, a place associated with Joseph, right? So those are kind of key like bits that are just getting kind of added in there. Um, With the well, we could do a whole side note, too, about water and drawing water. So one is we could look at other stories about wells, particularly Rebecca at the well, right, and drawing water for people. There's interesting combinations of those. But water is a symbol. There's a whole bunch of things. So that would be a whole other side note. I'm not going to do all of those, but that would be a place to kind of dig in, right? But she brings up the woman, well, we worship on our mountain, and you worship in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. So you're a mountain, right? They're both going to the mountain to seek God, but they have a different mountain. And she's like, so tell us which mountain is better, right? And he's like, you're missing the point, really, is kind of where he goes with this. Um, And that it's not always about the physical trappings. And so uh, what's really, I think, interesting about this story is that this transition and the fluidity in their conversation between the the literal and the figurative or the symbolic, like she's like, it's real water. She's talking about getting a drink. He's like, no, 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 it's not real water, right? But I'm a real person. So there's a kind of a, a back and forth between them about what are we actually talking about? We're literally talking about a water at a well, in a place, right? But we're figuratively talking about how we approach God and who gets to come, right? And who you're looking for and what do you really want? Do you really want the physical? Do you really want the spiritual? So within this story, there's a lot of that going on. And I think it's important that that's situated. Um, There's a little bit of an us-them that's possible here, but the writer is situating it in what they have in common is where the story starts. What do we have in common? How are we split apart? And then Jesus is going to bring it back to where they come back together. Right? Everyone worships in spirit and truth. So that's a, a pattern, a basic narrative there. Um, with Sinai, so I'd come back to it. So Sinai, just looking at patterns and kind of where we can see different repetitions. I'm just trying to give you guys like a sampling. All this could be delved in by scholars that have spent a lot of time on it for much longer amounts of time. Um, but one of the things that we look at with Sinai is Sinai is a place where we meet God. So there's a pattern there of how we approach, right? Moses approaches respectfully, right? There's maybe a little bit of the fear of the Lord and things like that. Um, But also, if we look at Exodus 24, it's going to tell us a little bit of the story of Moses going up to the mountain. Right? And so he, the Lord, says to Moses... 
Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. So in this approach to God, there's actually three, and three is a big number, uh, not like a large number, but an important number, but three layers of what's happening. So the people who are part of Israel, they're part of the people of God. So they're not on the outside, but they're not on the mountain, right? And then, and I always, I, this is a piece I forget, right? That it wasn't everybody and then just Moses, like the elders got to come partway up, right? There are more people that go with him partway and then Moses alone at the top. And that actually pattern of this kind of layers of closeness in approaching God is repeated in a lot of places. Does anyone think of another situation in which our approach to God is delineated in three separate spaces? Yeah, the temple, right? So there's the outer courts, which are still like in the temple. We're not talking about like outcasts or non-believers. Like it's still like a place of belief, right? And then the, oops, sorry, the holy of holy, the holy place and then the holy of holies, right? And the tabernacle is an important place because what is the tabernacle based on? Heaven, right? So the, the pattern for the tabernacle is given by God. Right? No one's like, this is a cool idea. Let's make it like Mount Sinai. They're like, God gives them the pattern. And he says, like, this is a representation. And we see that in Revelation, right? When we see, like, heaven, the heavens open up, the, the, the tabern- it's using the same temple figuratively. So we have the heavenly spaces and the tabernacle. And then the temple is, of course, that's literally just, they make it look like the tabernacle. So they're copying the pattern there on purpose. Sometimes it's on purpose. And with Revelation, we work our way back around. So that seems like a pattern that we see a lot of places, right? Um, And so in this case, it's both pattern and symbol together because these are literal physical spaces that exist. But they're also telling us something of a spiritual truth um, and of a a non-visible. So again, I I do keep using the word figurative. I just can't quite stop doing it because that's how... But it's not always figurative. Sometimes it's spiritual, okay? And so that would still be real, um, just not seen in that way. And so I did want to do a side note. Numbers are often part of repeated patterns in the Bible. So we talked about 3 and 40. Like, what's another big Bible number? 7, right? So, um, And people will take that. Like, that can be like a whole, whole long side note of what all those numbers go through. But in very basic patterns, 3, 7, 40, they're like these kind of numbers of completion. They seem like wholeness. Three, we always tell students writing papers, give three examples. If you give three examples, it sounds like you could go on forever, even if that's all you got, right? That's just like a number that's comfortable for human beings. Um, Seven is how we split up our weeks and things like that. And the 40 is a little bit different we could talk through. But those numbers again and again, we see them. So there's a reason for that repetition, or at least something that's supposed to catch our attention and tie these ideas together. Okay, so... Side, another day, another another speaker. I'm not going into the numbers, but uh, so. Um, oh, okay, so that's a little bit about setting. Like I said, I'll try to do the other ones a little bit more expediently because I see my time. No, I don't. Fine. That's why I didn't bring my timer last time, but it's going to be long. So, setting is, I think, the most overlooked for most readers. But character and plot, you probably are familiar with. You're like, character are the people, and there can be real people, right? So just to call them characters doesn't mean that they're not actual, like, human beings who lived at some point. It just means that that's how the story is being told. Um, And so what we want to know when we look at characters from a narrative standpoint as a story is how do we know about them, and what do we know? So what do we know, and how do we know it? Are we just told that sometimes the Bible just tells us straight up information? It was beautiful to look at. It wasn't very much to look at. He loved God. He was evil. Sometimes we just get straight up information. Sometimes, more often, we have to read the story, and then we have to read into the story. And so we have to decide, okay, which of this is important? What is the, what's their motivation? Why are they doing things? Uh, what are they doing that's good? What are they doing that's not good? Sometimes it's really clear. Sometimes we have to wait until lightning comes down to strike somebody, or they get the blessing of God, and then we can figure out, okay, that was a, okay when? That was, that was the bad choice, right? Sometimes you see it coming, right? I'll uh, use Ananias and Sapphira later, but you start reading that story, you're like, oh, this isn't going to be good, right? You get the narrative, the tension that builds from the way the story is told that they're going to have a, a bad ending. Um, 
So we want to look at that, and that kind of helps us understand that experiential piece, right? Because we connect to the characters. We see them as examples. It's a very natural experience to look at a person and want to emulate them or not, right? Sometimes we're like, oh, no, that's a bad... Like, learn from what they do. Don't do the same thing. So... With that, one of the techniques that we see sometimes in the Bible and often in literature is the idea of a foil. So a foil is a character that's built um, or set next to one as a contrast. And so by giving a contrasting example of something, it makes it more hyperbolic, more exaggerated, really clear like what the two sides are. So who are, does anyone have ideas on a couple of biblical characters who are set up as kind of opposites of one another? Okay, so we have Jesus, and then we have the thieves on the cross. And there's two thieves, and they actually have two different choices, too. So that gives us the comparison. What else? Jacob and Esau are like the most classic example of like a literary foil. They are complete opposites, and they're twins, so that makes the opposite more opposite, right? Because we would expect them to be Cain and Abel, right? One does one, one does the other. And actually, the Bible uses this contrasting technique throughout, even in like genealogies and things we see in Genesis, right? There's the men of the world, who are all about themselves and like who's Lamech and everyone's going to know my name and then there's the men of God, right? And then we get these like very contrasting lists. Uh, Saul and David, I think, are another nice example of the two men who would be the first king, right? The, the first real king or the first king king, you know? So what do we have? And one is mankind's king, Saul, and one is God's king. And we'll talk about David in a minute because he's not, he's not always perfect. So that, what? I, those I would not say are a literary foil. They are like a uh, sidekick more than the other, I suppose, right? So they're on, they have a similar problem. So, uh, so that sometimes is done. So that's interesting when we see two people with opposites. Uh, probably if we think back, if we got the whole story of their whole real life, they might not be quite as opposite as the text depicts them. But it's going to pick out all the moments of opposite opposition so that we see the dramatic difference, right? Um, it's not that like Esau never did anything right in his entire life. But we're just going to highlight all the really bad parts here. You know, we get the highlight reel of his bad choices. Um, probably he, he did some decent stuff once in a while, you know. So uh, we see those kind of pieces. Um, and that's how the story is told. Again, we don't get all the details, so we have to look at kind of what we're given um, and consider it important how people pick, picked and chose. So um, another kind of pattern that we see a lot with character is repeated types. And that's a kind of a more theological term, a type. Archetype is a more literary um, or like Jungian term. But, um, and so with the most common feature that we see people prefiguring or reflecting or being a type of um, is Christ, right? So it kind of is all like, okay, so we see Christ in these other characters, like elements of him. So who are some of the, the pre-Christ Christ? Where do we see like flickers of Jesus before he actually shows up? Adam, right? He's called, you know, the first, like Christ is called the second Adam, right? So clear biblical typing, right? Who else? Moses, right? We see like a lot of parallels there. He's a prophet like Moses. Again, the Bible specifically points it out. Um, he's a priest in the order of who? Melchizedek, right? So we have that one. Um, he's the son of David, right? So David is a type of Christ. And sometimes the son of we talk about him as the well, son of God instead of man. Those are whole different terms, actually. Son of God and son of man. We I needed some context to understand them. Uh, but Joseph, right? He's a, he's a, like in the messianic line of Joseph and David, two different the suffering servant and the reigning king. So that's a whole different thread. Uh, but so we see those. And what those tell us, right, if we think about them, there's these, all these stories. We're familiar with these stories from the Old Testament first, right, just historically. And so they're giving us all of these men and women, but in this case mostly men. Um, and these are the, the positive role models, right? These are the good guys in the story. So when we are looking to, like, emulate that or look for heroes, this is what the Bible trains us to look for, right? And then when Jesus shows up, he outdoes all that business, right? But he does those, so he's... Better than Melchizedek. He's better, actually, than the Levitical priest. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joseph. He's better than David, right? So he has these elements of them that we recognize or that the, the reader or the, you know, the, 
know, the reader, just the person, right, who's seeing this unfold, if they're familiar with the Old Testament, they're recognizing Jesus when that's done correctly. Why that doesn't always happen in the modern day is a side note sermon for like a whole other day. Um, but the Bible sets us up to recognize Jesus as like the hero, right? And so that would be one. Uh, these characters often highlight specific virtues or vices that we want to emulate or avoid. And just with that, I would just think it's important to know. We all can think of that. We know it. we tell, you know, in David and Goliath, he's faithful and brave, right? He trusts God. We can, we can list all their positive attributes. But the important note, I would say, is that the majority of positive biblical characters, at least the ones who get any amount of screen time, so to speak, um, are round characters. They're multifaceted, and they are not perfect. Almost every single one of those people we just mentioned, you can also mention when they made a really bad mistake. And not like, ooh, I forgot to like change the laundry mistake, but like, I had a woman's husband killed mistake, right? You know, oops, like, you know, so stuff that we're feeling pretty bad about ourselves, but probably is not on our docket, right? I lied to a man about whether my wife was really my wife because I was afraid of him, and I just left her there so that he'd have to deal with it, right? And maybe condemned his entire population to the plague. But, you know, it's just an accident. So... The Bible is very clear that the good characters are complicated, right? And that doesn't disqualify them actually from being the kind of people that we look up to because we're also going to be complicated. Um, And that also those poor decisions, those sins, have significant consequences, right? So you don't get out of that. That's a moral from those stories. Um, but also that there's an opportunity to repent and change. So I think King David's like the best example, the classic example, right? He's better than Saul. He's chosen. He's wonderful. Goliath, the bear, all the business, right? He's the king. He's even nice to Saul. The guy's trying to kill him, and he's like trying to be nice about it, trying to honor him. You know, he's playing the harp to get rid of the demons for the guy. That's before he's trying to kill him. But, you know, he's, he's a pretty, pretty nice guy, David, until the Bathsheba incident, right? And so... Um, where he, like, like I said earlier, he literally has Uriah killed, his faithful servant killed, so that he can take his wife. It's a pretty big problem, right? But he's still called a man after God's own heart. Um, and the Davidic line of kings still comes through him to Jesus, because God's not changing the plan, because God's not surprised by David being who David is. Um, and God's not surprised by us being who we are. But that this idea that good characters, if they're given time, so like Enoch, he walks with God. He's done. Like, it's a short story. We don't get all the details, right? But we can assume he probably made a bad choice or two, right? There are a couple of notable ex- exceptions to that pattern. Um, Jesus does not make any bad choices, okay, or sins or anything on any spectrum of that level. And, of course, God is always right. So you got Jesus and God. That's about it. Or people that we don't talk about enough to give them enough, like, to dig into their problems. Um, But Jesus and God are talked about a lot in the Bible, and we don't see a downside to them. So there we go. And then I would say also in kind of an interesting note is that evil is not actually normally very round or fleshed out. Evil characters are normally flat in the Bible, which means they're very one note. So what are they? They're evil. Are they complicated? They're evil. So what are they? They're evil. Right? That's all there is? Like... So good people can do evil things, but the evil characters are, are pretty much just evil. We're not wondering about, like, Goliath's home life, what made him that way. Um, and I, I would say that's a place where the, the narrative of the Bible is very distinct from, like, our contemporary narratives. We as a people are very interested in the villain and making that complicated. In the Bible's perspective, it's not complicated, right? There's lots of ways to be good. There's lots of complicated bits to that. But to be evil is just to be evil. And there's no excuse. There's no background. There's no, like, interest to it. It's just the darkness. And you move past it. And it's very different. tells us something about maybe what we culturally are interested in versus what the Bible is interested in. Um, So, but often these stories, the lessons or virtues, have to do with the plot. So the characters are important. There's no story without a character. We don't want stories about, like, the tree that just sits there. There has to be, like, a person or if it's children's literature, an animal that acts like a person. But there's got to be, like, people in it. Um, So we're interested in that. And then the plot, though, is what actually happens. So the plot is what happens and how we're told the story. What are the steps or the patterns? How do the characters grow? Um, What do we hope for? What are we looking for? Or what do we hope to avoid? And what are the patterns there? So patterns and plot and character um, are often emphasized by the setting. 
but they offer us the insight to the human behavior. That's where we get to read into and we get to engage the story. We see what happens, and then as the reader, we're like, okay, well, why would why would they do that? Uh, what did God think about that? What happened to them in the end? Like, how much of this were they in control of? The Bible actually often emphasizes human choice, and we'll talk about that in a second. So, there are a lot of similar plots in the Bible. So you heard the one story like, hey, that sounds familiar. Because those are patterns of behavior that are not just a single coincident incident in somebody's lives, but that is the, the biblical narrative setting us forth. Those are patterns. So um, if this is how it goes along, this is the outcome that you should expect, right? We know what to look for in a larger sense, and they're explaining a truth through that, a principle or a theme. So a couple of, well, the one pattern and plot. Um, so one pattern and plot is that when people, uh, that God provides sacrifices that are needed for salvation. So that's kind of the moral of the story, that God will, will take care of it. So what are some stories where the plot tells us that that's the truth, that God will take care of the sacrifice that's needed? Okay, so Jesus is the big one. You like blew the finale, Randy, right? That's the big one. Aiden? Yeah, in Jericho, where God takes the kind of the piece of that, Abraham, Abraham and Isaac. yeah, Abraham and Isaac, right? Um, and then if no one else is going to give it to me. And I go ahead. What's the third one? She already heard this sermon, but she knew the answer. So God gives the sacrifice that's needed for redemption. Abraham and Isaac. There's one like in the middle from my samples, and there's Jesus. So what's another big sacrifice that God makes? on behalf of the people, or it tells them how to do it, at least. So it has to do with his people. The story of Israel, Passover, there we go. Okay, so the Passover lamb. So in that case, the people have their own lambs, but God gives them the, like, detailed how-to instructions um, in a way that they can manage, right? Like, he didn't ask them to sacrifice kangaroos or something, right? So it was, like, something that they had. Uh, I would say he, that's still a choice of him to provide for them, right? And so that actual set of three, one, three is a nice number. We talked about that. It feels like I could keep going, which I could, right? But um, it actually tells us something about a lot of the patterns that we see in plots is that one, it's the story of a person. We read the story of a person, Abraham and Isaac, right? And after you have kids, that story's like way freakier, right? So you're like, oh my goodness, right? And then that story becomes the story of the nation, Right, we see the pattern for the people become the pattern for Israel, right? So the saving of the Exodus, and then that story is really the story of mankind and God's interaction with humanity, and that's what we see with Jesus. So we have a single incident, a nation, all mankind, and that's a very clear, dramatic example. But we see that through different stories as well. These kind of patterns of how. God works are shown to us on these different levels and ways. So a few patterns that we see, I'm going to just throw out a few and you can kind of look for them or think of examples in your own mind. Um, this is not all of them. Like this could go for a long time. Any good book has more than one theme and more than one pattern. And the Bible is a very good book. Um, and it's got a lot of pages. So there's like a lot of work that can happen in here narratively and linguistically. But so one thing the Bible suggests over and over again is that people are often selfish, and that doesn't tend to end well for them. That people are faithless, but God is faithful. So that may end well for them or not, depending on what God has planned. What God intends, or what man intends for evil, God can use for good, right? Uh, and we see that very specifically. Joseph says that, so he gives you the moral of the story, okay? Often we're not given the moral of the story. Um, if I ask you... Um, What's the moral of the tortoise and the hare? What is it? Slow and steady runs the race. And everyone whispered it really quietly, but you also the exact same thing. If I ask you what the theme of Romeo and Juliet is, you probably all could give me some kind of answer, but you wouldn't say it in cool sync surround sound, right? Because Romeo and Juliet doesn't tell you its own theme. Uh, when Aesop writes the tortoise and the hare into his collection of fables, he gives you the theme. So in that case, Joseph gives it to us, Right? What man intends for evil, God can use for good. And then Paul riffs that off in the uh, New Testament and says, uh, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, right? So again, it's a similar idea. But normally we have to read into it kind of more like the Romeo and Juliet situation. So that may mean we come up with different themes, uh, or maybe we just say them in slightly different wording. But theme is important, 
Okay, so I'll talk about that. Uh, human choice is more important than human circumstance. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're rich, but it matters what you choose to do with that, right? We see the woman um, with her, like at um, Easter, right, during the Passion Week. She gives her two cents. She can't control her circumstances and ha- give herself more to give, but she chooses to give what she has. So that's a choice. Um, Abraham can choose to tell the truth about Sarah, or he can choose not to. He's not going to change the circumstance, but he can change his choice. Um, and so we have that. And ultimately, a big one would be that a holy God intends to dwell with a fallen people. And so he will make the way to bridge that chasm that they created. And I would argue, since we see it so often, we can say that they create it. They are continually creating it. We're continually creating it. And he's continually bridging it. It's a story that isn't over, right? But there are two main threads, often, um, or two main themes of the Bible, People will parse that a lot of different ways, but here's just kind of an easy way. And I didn't create these. It's like you can Google this or whatever. It's wholesale, like CBU Bible class from 20 years ago. Someone said this. So uh, one is that there is, there's two threads. And we'll use the word thread literally and symbolically for this. But thread, the scarlet thread of redemption. If you read the whole Bible, you can read it as it's all a narrative of redemption. That's one aspect that will give you one reading um, and the scarlet thread comes from an actual literal scarlet thread uh, in Joshua 2 where Rahab has a scarlet cord she takes in the spies tell her to tie the cord they tell her what to do she does it right and then she's saved oh it sounds kind of like the exodus God told them what to do they did it they were saved right so again a pattern um, so that's the thread we see it again the tabernacle has a lot of scarlet incorporated in that. So we can see that in the, the tabernacle is a hugely symbolic building. Um, literally with thread, like in how things are designed, but figuratively in blood. Um, and then um, ultimately to the redemptive blood of Christ. So that kind of reuse of red. And so obviously blood, literally red. Also symbolically this like scarlet tie. So colors as a side note are really common symbols in literature and the Bible. And you even know some, right? Purple is associated with what? Royalty, right? So these are like not um, universal, but they're not uncommon. And the tabernacle relies heavily on blue, purple, and red. So as a space, you can like read all kinds of stuff under that. Um, some scholars even look into like how those dyes were made. So the scarlet dye is made from a worm. So it's like people are like worms. Like you can like go like along like, a lot of side notes on the symbols and how you want to go through. But colors in the Bible will be a whole other series for another day. So. The red is the one, so that's one theme that if we're looking for that narrative, we'll see it, right? If we're paying attention for it, we'll see patterns of redemption in the text. And the second thread um, is a different color. Anyone want to guess? Not white. I just like to see you all squirm. Normally, this is where in class I drink my coffee and just wait. So so the golden thread um, of glory, right? That's just alliterative, but really it's the golden thread of God's presence in the human experience, which is God's interaction. So God is given the gold, and it's not as literal. There are some literal gold threads, like in the temple, but um, it's not as literal with the thread, but there is a lot of gold, and there is literal gold in the temple. What's gold in the temple? Lots of things, but what really heavily associated with God's presence is gold in the temple? The ark and the mercy seat specifically is meant as gold. So it's covered in gold. There's this, this place. Right? So the gold is associated with the temple and with God. We see gold itself as a symbol. How many of you have gold wedding rings? Not everybody anymore, but that's the most traditional choice. Gold is pure. It's a good metal, right, for those things. Um, it's, it's a symbol itself, right? Um, and sometimes it's about the gold, the actual gold or the colors of gold. And sometimes it's just about light. So light gets collapsed into that symbol. And so we see... Extended references to Jesus as the light of the world. The lights come into the darkness. The darkness can't comprehend it, right? So that goes over and over again. So those kind of two golden light get collapsed into this golden thread of how God is dealing with us, right? Which is connected to redemption. They can't be taken apart. So they're often called threads, and that's a metaphor in itself, right? Um, And it's a good one because when we look at the Bible, there are all these different threads, There's so many different, you can just pick one out. And to pick one out is interesting. If you're looking at a tapestry, you can like focus in on one spot spot and it's interesting, right? There's like all this detail. But you don't get the whole picture until you step back and you see the whole thing and how the threads work together. Um, And you can cue the Prince of Egypt song, Heaven Eyes. Just put that on the radio on the way home if you don't know what I mean, right? But um, as we pull out certain threads, they're of interest. 
Um, but when we see them contextualized together, that gives us the greater whole. Um, and once we start looking, we're like, oh, there's not very much. I don't know if you've ever done this with a painting, like, oh, it's, or a puzzle. I just did a puzzle with Anna, right? Oh, there's not very much red in this puzzle, right? And then you start to do the puzzle. And what do you notice? Like, all the pieces have red. Like, how are you supposed to finish this thing? You're like, there's a flower everywhere. Like, I thought it was a blue puzzle with a little bit of red, but the red's everywhere. And that's an issue of memory and attention to detail and pattern, right? So as we start looking for these things, we see them. So that's what I'd like to encourage you to do, is to just kind of be a little more aware, maybe, than you were before as you were reading, and look for these kinds of pieces and see what arises um, as you're, you're reading the Bible itself. So a couple of takeaways. I'm done. All right, note how the story is told, as well as the basics of the story itself. Uh, consider both literal and symbolic functions of setting, character, and plot. These are... Uh, most of these, except for the parables, really, are literal things that actually happen with real people. So there's that piece of it. But also, the details we chose about those people to include, that's what we want to, That's the symbolic piece often. And we look for those repeated patterns, characteristics, and themes, right? Where do we see repeats? And then, where, um, what do we get out of looking at the pieces individually? And then, how they fit into the whole. So, those are the four takeaways. Are there any questions? No questions? Well, clearly I have lots to say, so you can feel free to, to hit me up. I will say this. Um, when I was taking a class with the rabbi, I love how you pointed out that they spent time 40 years in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. The rabbi said that it was a honeymoon period for mm-hmm. the Israelites because they couldn't get swayed in any other way, but they had to depend solely on God. Yeah, and that's really like um, my, my understanding. I'm not an expert in Jewish thought, but my understanding is that from Jewish thought, the wilderness time is like this sweet communion with God. Whereas from a, a kind of more Christian background, I was kind of like, oh, it's the time where they like have to suffer in the wilderness because they were bad how we interpret that story sometimes tells us a little bit about us and our culture, right? And our guilt culture and that kind of piece of Christianity as opposed to what actually the text is saying. And when you look at Jesus doing it voluntarily, um, and I will say with that, Jesus came out of that different too. God provided for them in the wilderness bread to eat. And when Jesus is there, he doesn't have the bread to eat. And Satan asks him about it. He's like, don't you want some bread, right? And he's like... I've been provided for. Man doesn't live on bread alone, right? So Jesus is always one-upping it on the spiritual level, right? But that—that that is the point, right? Is that they're very, they're, I think they're supposed to be read as parallel incidents. And when we do that, the wilderness doesn't look so bad. Anybody? Um, this is kind of related to it, and I've been toiling with uh, the story of Jacob and Esau and how um, what the significance is because Jesus came through that line, you know, and Rebecca helped, mm-hmm. like, deceive, you know, and I've always been confused why it was supposed to be Esau, but they went through and even put on fur, and they explained it pretty in detail of how yeah. they tricked you know, um, Isaac, and I was always like, why, what, what's the significance of that story, and what's it relate to, and the line of, you know, that's an important line, yeah. and there's deception that went on, so I've been trying to figure out what what the parallels are to that. Yeah, and I don't always, I'm like, I'm starting to get into actual, like, theological details, and I want to, like, overspeak, but... Um, I would say, I, yeah, right, they include that in the story, so we're supposed to know that. Sometimes the Bible doesn't tell us about all people's dicey business. That one, they're like, here, let's all take a look at this. So it's, it's there. Um, clearly, part of the point of the story is that Esau, as opposed to Jacob, is prioritizing his current physical situation over his kind of long-term one, right? So whereas Jacob's all interested, um, and Rebecca's super interested in the, the promise, he's interested in like the soup, right? Um, which I imagine is like not a one-off, right? That seems like that's probably a pattern in their behaviors of the story is meant to kind of showcase this incident. So that's part of it, right? Is that the perspective needs to be the eternal perspective, not the the, contempt, the circumstantial moment. Um, 
also with that, I think uh, when we look at the pattern of how the men and women of God often make a big mistake, and that doesn't mess up God's plan or actually even necessarily remove them from the full process. Sometimes it does, right? Moses is not allowed to go to the promised land. It does seem to enter the kingdom. It's, mo- you know, like he probably, I expect we'll see him in heaven, right? So he misses out on part of it, but not the whole thing. Um, so I think that might be showcasing here, like that, that's not an ideal moment. Um, and if we read the rest of the stories, we know, well, just like Abraham and Sarah, it works out okay with what Abraham did. But wouldn't it have worked out better if God had just taken care of it? So my guess would be that if Rebecca and um, Jacob had not done that, Jacob still would have wound up with the promise. He didn't have to get it himself. So he loses a little bit of esteem in perpetuity. But not enough. He's still, I mean, he's still one of the patriarchs, right? He's still the God man that God chose. And again, I don't, I know, I think some of our speakers would know more about, or really listeners online would know more about this than me. But my understanding is that often from a Jewish perspective, like we, we, we hold that against Jacob, like forever. Like that is who he is. He is the deceiver. He is bad. What was God thinking? Just like Thomas. Right? Thomas asks one question one day, and he's doubting Thomas for the rest of the time. But the guy was like, oh, I got my sword. Let's go kill the bad guy. Like, he was ready to go for Jesus. So, but we don't remember that story. We only remember the doubting. So Jacob, that's how we think of him. Um, my understanding is that the, the Jewish perspective of Jacob is much more optimistic and holistic to the roundness of his character. He did that, but then what did he do with the rest of his life and his time? Right? And he has a lot more wisdom, and he is you know, in communion with God in a different way. So I think there's a piece that too is how we're, which of the stories about Jacob we tell. That's the one we always tell, but there's more. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's something to like look into. I think that's part of, that's what I hope it inspires you to kind of like ask that question. Why would they tell us this part? Like what are we, why would we maybe want to know this? Is there a cultural context that would help us understand why this is an important story? Cause it seems like a weird story to me, right? Yeah. Did you have anything to add to that? No, I, I, yeah. Yeah. My my only thing there is that what you said. We have a tendency to zero in on him as the bad guy. In the newer covenant, the scripture is very clear: Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated is said before they're even born. So I really think often we try to help God's promises come about. Then when they come about, we're not sure if he did it or not. And I think that's a real problem. I've also heard Rabbi say that Joseph or Jacob was not the deceiver. Yeah. He, like, because Rebecca was the one that was told that Jacob was the one that was going to get it. It was not Isaac that was told that. So Rebecca was trying to help him come along and understand. There's definitely a lesson about meddling mothers involved in that story and letting your grown men make their own choices. Right. So our wives help us come along quite a bit, if you ask me. And so, um, but anyways, I just... uh, that's just a perspective that I had heard at one point as well. So, But listening to the patterns, the interesting thing is you said nobody goes into Goliath. I thought to myself, yeah, all those psychologists out there would go, oh, let's talk about Goliath. No, you're right, because God cares about the good. Do away with the evil and start acting appropriately. So thank you for, again, that insight.